Hello and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. My name is Zach Faulkner-Barfield. I am the founder of The Perfect Gentleman and alongside me, as always, is the erstwhile. James Marwood. Nice to see you again, Zach. How are you? I'm very well, sir. I'm very well indeed. How are you? I'm good. I've had a, a good morning, got a lot of work done, and then I've been uh, boxing at lunchtime. So I've got lots of energy now, ready to go. Excellent. There you go. Well, I've had a I've had a relatively productive day at the desk, apart from I got stood up for lunch. Ah, always frustrating. Always frustrating, exactly, yes. I used the opportunity to take a bit of reading time. Ah, there you go. Wasn't the last week's podcast fantastically fun? It was so much fun. I want to do more of those. I really enjoyed them. I hope the guys listening did. It was just so much fun to do. Talking to the guys was just... Um, was great not that listening to you wasn't lovely um but the change from from just us talking it was great you know some interesting opinions not the same which was nice yes having leah brian and grant with us was just a really blissful podcast we shall definitely do more of those because we of the three topics we we scheduled to talk about we only talked one and Yes. Probably didn't really come to any conclusions on the one. <laughs> no, I think if we can get some more of those, that would be great. And I'm always up for recording more with that team. Yeah, and maybe we'll we'll find some other contributors along the way. Um, and you listeners out there, if you want to uh, join us at any point mm. in the time, do uh, let us know. Drop us an email at enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or mm-hmm. contact us on any of our social media channels, um, whether that's the P Gentlemen on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, you name it, we're probably on it. Um, so you can always catch us on any of those. We mentioned it previously, but you know, one of our faithful followers um, inspired August's magazine an issue which we're working on in the background here mm-hmm. which is all about sustainability so we do listen to our audience and we do respond to our audience and we like engagement with our audience so please feel free to drop us lines and contact us excellent so uh what's uh, tickling your fancy in the gentleman news section this month well the first one was a, an article i came across a couple of weeks back which is about uh, office attire and this is in my mind because i've just started with a new client but i'm switching between two offices with very different dress codes <laughs> And office dress codes are always a bit of a problem. But this article, it's great. It's been written by Derek at the Put This On blog, which is one of my favourite blogs. Derek's a great writer, and he, he writes both for the PTO and also for his own blog, which is called Die Workwear, which I think is a great name. <laughs> um, although he does seem to wear far more workwear than he used to, so I'm not sure it's still appropriate. Anyway, his, his article is really calling out an article in the New York Times about the, the end of office dress codes. The idea that the Times is putting forward is that the coat and tie uniform is going away and that we're, we're now moving to a more open and casual style of dress. Now, the, the New York Times quotes some interesting people and they talk a lot about how this way of working is, is much freer and it allows for more self-expression through the way you dress at work and the theory being that that will lead to better work Mm -hmm. but Derek his views are very much in line with my own which is when you actually spend time in these offices and especially when you step outside a little bit we've gone from in most places an explicit uniform shirt and tie a suit or or a dress or trouser or skirt suit for ladies we've gone from something that's explicit like that to something which is implicit so there's still a dress code and it's still there And it's still just as strong, but now it's secret and you've got to find out what it is. And it becomes an even stronger marker of being part of the in-group. So you either get the dress code or you don't. And I know from emails I've had through my own blog or from questions on Quora or from talking to friends that learning how to dress for these kinds of workplaces is quite stressful. 
you can't really give full expression. You can't wear whatever you want. You can't just turn up in sweatshirt and, and tracksuit or something, and that's too informal. And yet a suit is too formal. And you have this kind of grey space in between that we don't really have any set rules for. And the only way you learn those rules is by getting it wrong. Yeah, and that affects confidence. There's a whole knock-on effect of that as well. Of, of course it does. The way Derek talks about this, he has this great line where he talks about the not-too-formal but still professional soft dress code means effectively you've got one uniform, which is jeans, maybe chinos, with a button-up shirt, probably gingham. <laughs> yes, true. I noticed this when I was I was on the train on my commute down to London this week. Normally I get the very early train, and the very early train, it's all chaps in suits. The slightly later train, and every guy apart from me was dressed like that. Yeah. And I was the odd one out in a three-piece suit and a shirt and tie. As Derek says, you know, the, the new code, it's no less strong, and it's not ugly. It's not common. In fact, that's how I'm dressed Today, just working in the office at home, you know, I've got a check shirt and a, and a pair of chinos, but it's boring. <laughs> it's so boring. You know, if the biggest bit of expression you've got is choosing between jeans or chinos, or it's whether you're going to have a green, red or blue check on your gingham shirt, mm. we get so few opportunities as men to really express ourselves through how we dress and how you can change, you know, the difference between a very smart and smooth worsted suit, which is the type of wool you would see on most business or lounge suits and maybe a, a white or cream shirt and a monochrome tie. That's one expression. All the way through to the other side, where you might have a flannel suit or a, a more flamboyant check or maybe a stripe or something like that. A pattern tie, you can experiment with the colour of your shirt. I'm a big p fan of pink shirts or of different shades of blue. You've got a pocket square, which gives you that extra flash of colour. In one sense, it's good because it's a uniform that you can that you can rely on and it gives you boundaries to work within that are explicit. But just like in poetry or in art, firm boundaries allow for more creativity. If you're writing poetry and you've got a very formal style like a haiku, it's much easier to be creative within that framework and still be confident that what you're putting forward meets the goal. I loathe business casual with a passion. I do it because I have to do it for some clients. You know, I have clients that have specifically requested not to wear a suit. The last pair of jeans I bought was for just such a client. It's fine, but don't be persuaded that this is somehow creative or open. It's not. It's just a different, less open, more secret, more conforming dress code. Yeah, no, it's true. I couldn't agree more with you. We've talked about this previously. Mm -hmm. Away from the airwaves, the informal business casual is lazy dressing. A, it's secretive as far as if you go into an office, you don't know what it is. Yeah. Then it becomes lazy dressing. Mm -hmm. When I walk to yoga in the morning, well, I want to walk back, actually. I walk along the swathe of uh, the people going to work. Yes. There, there is this divide in men of the suited gentleman. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of new business office dress. Mm -hmm. And then you have the tracksuit wearing gentleman. That's it. But it's another set of uniforms. The laziness is a factor. One of the people that Derek quotes in the article is from another New York Times article from years ago from a lady called Anna North. And she talks about how oppressive this new cool office environment can be. And often, this is one of the things that I do a lot in business. You know, if you want to make a culture open and inaccessible, the first thing you do is write down the rules. Yes, absolutely. And you turn unwritten rules and you make them explicit. You say, is that actually what we agree with? And as she points out, the word privilege 
literally means private law. It's secret, it's deniable, and it's designed to exclude people. It's to divide the world into us cool kids who get it and you plebs who don't. So that's not what we want. We want to be accessible to as many people as possible. Even if you do have a dress code that means you don't want people to wear ties or you don't want suits, write it down, make it explicit. It stops that difficulty of bringing outsiders in to your group, which is key to any sort of collaborative business. So I think quoting Eddie Izzard, bizarrely, yes. he says men don't have freedom of dress, mm-hmm. uh, whereas women do have freedom of dress. Yeah. Men tend to want to conform or think they're forced to conform. We could talk about some of the challenges that women face in the workplace. There was a recent case about um, the lady working for one of the reception companies who uh, lost her job because she didn't want to wear high heels for health reasons, and that's a problem. You can see how that could be a challenge. But I think in general, Edizard's right there. It's more through our own choice than through things being forced on us from outside, but we do seem so keen to conform and to dress in a way that doesn't stand out. And you can see that even with some of the stealth wealth clothing. Yes, yes. Brands which ape streetwear, they follow the design trends of, for want of a better phrase, it doesn't really work well, but but a sort of proletarian dress, but will charge you you know, £3,000 for a coat, which basically looks the same as the coat you could buy from TK Maxx. Nothing against spending lots of money or against TK Maxx. They're fine in their place. Yes. But it is this kind of stealth way of expressing without being brave enough to actually express. Hmm. It's a bit of a shame. Whilst we're on the topic of Eddie, it's actually one of my favourite quotes of his, which is where he, he someone was challenging him and said, like, why do you wear women's dresses? And he said, well, they, they aren't women's dresses. They're mine. I paid for them. <laughs> I, just, I love his attitude to that. He, yes. he does not care what other people think of him. He has fun with how he dresses. No, absolutely. It's great. I, I went on a little bit of a soapbox rant there. I apologise. That's what we have the opportunity <laughs> to do. Give me a microphone and I'm going to use it. <laughs> Probably equally as amusing and very up our own street. I read a uh, report from Asian correspondent. Mm-hmm. University students in China get discounts for saying please and thank you. Oh, that's very interesting. Yep. At a cafeteria restaurant in their university, Mm -hmm. they can get up to 50% off. Yeah, that's quite a bit. For saying hello, please, thank you. Basically, being polite gets them a discount. Fantastic. I just thought it was genius. And that's interesting because I've worked with a few Chinese clients over the past couple of years. China's such a a huge country. Um, You've got huge variations in it. But there are a few guys with that. I've had to have an off-the-record conversation with them about actually... In these sorts of circumstances, this is the sort of behaviour that would be expected. Even something as, as simple as letting other people off the tube before you get on, rather than just pushing through. It does change how you're perceived. So it's great that the Chinese universities are, are looking to teach that with a nice carrot. So they were saying that the students are very happy with this. Mm-hmm. There were some complaints on the Chinese um, social media sites like Weibo and a few of the others saying that showing common courtesy should be done with sincerity and not for a cheaper meal and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you can see the point. But As we've said previously and we always say, the more people that are better mannered, the world will get better. So if you have to carrot them, carrot them. Yes. If they're not doing it, carrot them. And people tend to respond better to carrots than sticks. Our wonderful partners, the English Cream Tea Company, deliver a fresh take on tradition. The English Cream Tea Company offers quintessentially British gifts. Choose from the freshly prepared afternoon tea hampers to be hand-delivered right to your door throughout mainland UK, or select from a range of gift vouchers. There are also postable gifts of award-winning chocolate brownies, tea, delicious shortbread, and even cheese-please tuck tins with delicious cheese scones and chutney. After all, the perfect gentleman needs to be able to send the perfect gift, whether it's to say thank you, congratulations, or season's greetings. And the English Cream Tea Company supplies that, complete with your own personalised gift message. 
Who do you know who would not love the gift of afternoon tea? So go to theenglishcreamtea.com for a charming touch of British indulgence. So what else has been catching your eye, James? Another really interesting article I read online. This came to me through a Quora question that a chap called Michael Snow asked me. And he pointed me to a blog that I didn't know about. It's called uh, Five Year Project. I can't get the name of the guy who actually writes it. He goes under the, the abbreviation CTS. Fascinatingly, he's actually based in Newcastle, the same city where I am. Okay. It's all blogs about building a gentleman's wardrobe over five years. And there's some great articles on there. So if you're interested in style, it's very much from a British perspective. It's worth checking out. And he's written an article comparing, he calls it Shirt Wars. Who makes the best shirt? And he's comparing T.M. Lewin, Horse and Curtis, one of our sponsors, Thomas Pink and Charles Tierwitt. It's quite interesting, the things he breaks down, and he, he talks a lot about faith and perceived quality. And there are some things in there I think I would take slight issue with. But what struck out at me was how much weight he places on, on heritage as important. And heritage, is a, it's been something quite key in, in menswear marketing mm. for a few years. Um, you sent me a link to a similar article talking about heritage in The, the Independent talking about brands like like Macintosh and who, who kind of came up with the whole bonded cotton uh, with rubber to make waterproof fabric and things like that, or talking about brands like Karl Lagerfeld and trying to revamp those. But what was interesting in CTS, in his approach, was he seemed very interested in how old and for how long some of these companies had been making making shirts. And they all have. Lewins goes back to 1898, and they have claim to fames about coat shirts, which is basically the modern shirt. If you ever go into their stores, they talk about their history in terms of design. Thomas Pink, which actually is quite a modern brand. It is quite modern. It is. It put forward in the 80s, although took their name from an 18th century tailor who came up with the red hunting coat, which is why they're called pinks rather than red coats, just as an aside. Good aside. I like that one. Good, good. Although they are actually owned by LVMH, the Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy group, so there's lots of history there. Tierwit, which is another modern 80s brand, yeah. he seems to be scoring Lewins and Hawes and Curtis higher because of that, which is interesting to me. And I think, you know, Hawes especially really drove the, the Windsor cutaway collar for anybody who's followed any of my menswear writing. The Duke of Windsor is a, a style icon of mine, you know, his personal life and his politics aside. He was a fantastic dresser. And, and so buying shirts from the same place he bought them, that's cool. But really what I'm interested in is, is how important it is not to be too carried away by heritage, especially by claims of heritage. Yeah, I think everyone can claim to be a heritage brand in some way. Lots of brands have have names and they've been purchased by various other people along their route. Sometimes I think it's bad, sometimes I think it's good. Depends if they're doing a good job at the back end. One of the hardest parts about understanding how to dress well, and especially buying quality, is quality's hard to judge. Hmm. And for a lot of us, I know I did this before I really started to learn, was I would look at price as correlating with quality. Mm, I would buy the most expensive thing I could afford, which sometimes works more often than not, it doesn't. Yes, no, it's true. I could talk about items I've bought from expensive brands that haven't stood up and were well-designed but not well-made. Or you can look at brands which have relatively young histories but make fantastic products. I mean, a, A prime example, if we're talking about shirts, is Emma Willis on German Street. Yes. Her company's relatively modern. She was the newest addition to German Street, which is the street for shirt shops in London. I have two shirts from from Emma. I couldn't possibly afford more because they are expensive. They're well over well over £200. But they are absolutely fantastic. Now, there's no great legacy or, or heritage to what she does. 
but the quality is amazing and the design is great the care and the attention to detail so if you were looking just on the basis of of heritage you know i personally think emma's probably the best shirt maker in london that's nothing to do with how old her company is it's how good she is yes and then of course there's the factor of well if you want to make mass market mass produced clothing mm -hmm. then that suddenly changes the dynamic and and also you've got to find the right shirt that fits you oh absolutely that's one thing this article actually from cts touches on really really well he talks about his own build you know he's a, he's a tall guy with broad shoulders and unusually long arms he likes lewin shirts because lewins tend to be cut a little longer yeah for me for example i'm i've got broad shoulders but i've also got quite a tubby waist and relatively short arms hose and curtis shirts are great for me because they offer different sleeve lengths their classic cut fits me really well so probably half the shirts in my wardrobe are hose just because i know i can take one off the rack and it will fit me that's the key isn't it that's the key yeah absolutely right zach yeah it's got to fit you well and, and buy within your budget i have those flirtations with very expensive shirts they're fantastic is it worth the, the additional expense for me not really if you read style blogs like Simon Compton's Permanent Style, which is probably the, the biggest style blog in the world, you know, he talks about Italian makers and Spanish makers and, and French who make absolutely amazing shirts, but they're really beyond the, the reach of most of us. Hmm. And they're just incrementally better than what you could buy from the likes of Hawes or Thomas Pink or, or whoever. Some of the best shirts, the ones I wear most often, are Marks and Spencer's. I think I'm going to start a new phrase. A gentleman hack. A gentleman hack. Yes, I like that. Especially if you're like us and you wear suits all the time and, and, and shirts all the time. You hard wear shirts. I, I quite hard wear shirts. If you work in a city, your shirts get grubby, they get grimy as you're walking around. Exactly. Collars go, cuffs go. Unless you have a very large budget yeah, and you can afford made-to-measure and bespoke shirts on a regular basis, more power to you. Please wear them where we can see them because they look great. As a gentleman hack, go out and buy the deals from... Turwit and T.M. Lewin and Horse and Curtis, because I go through probably probably eight shirts a year. Yep. I rotate through eight shirts a year, easily. You know, there's some shirts I wear more frequently, they get more hard-worn, but I'll go through eight shirts a year. Experiment with a couple of brands until you find your perfect fit. If you see in the window, oh, they've got a good deal, go in and buy some. So uh, my last piece of news is actually probably no surprise. A recent study has discovered that the better groomed you are, the more money you are likely to earn. About 20% more, it says. That seems logical, actually. It's, it's just interesting. 20% more money for being better groomed. It's a no-brainer at that level, isn't it? Even if you have no personal investment in how you look and present yourself, the return on investment for that, from, from a business phrase, is clear. So, gentlemen, if you want to earn a bit more money in your life, make the effort, shave, shave well. If you have a beard, groom it, keep it neat, keep it tidy, get the hair cut regularly, mm -hmm. get some good deodorant, get some great fragrance. It's not particularly difficult to do. No, not at all. It doesn't have to be expensive. I'm a great fan of old man barbers because they're normally far less expensive than the posh salons, and I think you get a better haircut. Uh, gentleman hack number two of the day. <laughs> yes, yes. That's your, your one. My gentleman hack for grooming of number day is go to training salons. Oh, very good idea, yes. One final piece of news, just because it's highly amusing. Okay. Kalashnikov, yes. the makers of the infamous AK-47 assault rival, have decided to go into menswear. Okay, that seems like a logical change. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's fantastic. I know they've made or at least have put their name to things like pocket knives and watches for a few years, but menswear is a bit of a a bit of a new one. Yes, I'm just wondering: will they have a, a curved pocket for the magazine clip? Possibly. <laughs> you know. Uh, yes. Yeah. Or will there be you know sort of traditional wooden accents? The AKs have a lot of the mechanics on the opposite side to traditional guns, so perhaps they'll button differently as well. <laughs> Who knows? Actually. Who knows? I, T- to be fair, though, I'd be interested to see what this looks like, because I think that could lend itself to some nice, traditionally styled, casual or workwear. Yes. Elliot Rhodes is the foremost belt brand that seeks to make people see belts in a whole new way and to show them that a great belt is imperative to dressing with style and individuality. With four stores, three in London and one in Japan... Elliott Rhodes belts are bespoke and innovative. They create beautiful luxury leather belts and buckles in a wide variety of colours and textures and styles. They suit all tastes. Check them out at elliottrhodes.com. Summer is almost upon us. Well, it's, it's warming up in the Northern Hemisphere. We need to start thinking about our summer wardrobes. Summer suits, James. Yes, well, it can be a bit of a challenge. And I think most of the suits we wear and most of the suits you'll buy off the rack are what are known as two-season or three-season suits. You'll be fine with them in the in the chillier autumn days and you'll be fine with them on the warmer spring days. But when you get to the really hot days of summer, you need to approach things a little bit differently. And I know some people will shy away from wearing suits on those days, um, but I don't think you necessarily need to if you keep maybe one suit in your wardrobe, which is more of a summer weight suit. So what makes a suit summer weight? Really, it comes down to two things. The most obvious is the cloth it's made from. You're a big fan of, of seersucker, and you have a fantastic seersucker suit that I'm quite jealous of. I am a big fan of seersucker. And seersucker is great because it's a more casual suit because the fabric is naturally a little crumpled. And for those of you who don't know, seersucker is a fabric which is generally silk and cotton in thin stripes. The name comes from, I think, the Persian for milk and sugar because it's kind of the difference in, in texture with them. They're quite traditional for summer wear, but they tend to be. A little bit more casual, which is great for summer when, when we're generally a little more casual anyway. But because you've got that silken cotton, it becomes a very airy, light suit. It's not heavy. It's not going to trap a lot of, of hot air under it. And any breezes will waft through. They look fantastic. I mean, certainly yours is um, sort of a, a blue and white one. I am currently eyeing up a lilac, sort of purpley lilac striped one at the moment very nice i know it was quite a big thing on savile road a couple of years ago they did a big drive on seersucker and they had some fantastic cloths there and they're just now starting to come into some of the off the rack things so you can have lilac and be quite playful and fun with that i've seen them in gray and blue and darker colors which if you work in a more traditional office would work for that but seersucker is a great choice and another is linen. I love linen suits. Yes. I've worn linen linen suit and linen jackets for years. When I was 15 and, and sneaking into pubs to drink underage, I had a linen jacket that I bought that I thought helped me look a bit more mature. So my fashion crime, uh, <laughs> my fashion crime, which I, I'm going to admit to the public, is when I was the, about that age, my idol was uh, Don Johnson in Miami Vice. So I went out and brought a white linen jacket. Did you roll the sleeves up? I did. Uh, <laughs> well, you can't not, really. Really? If you're going to go 80s, you may as well go full 80s. And I, it was funny, I, I remember finding it in my wardrobe some sort of seven years later, as like in my early 20s, and I just went, oh dear God. <laughs> <laughs> but they're fun. I mean, I mean, one of the things as well I really like about 
about linen. It, linen can be, especially lightweight linen, can be a bit hard to care for. It, it wrinkles easily and it looks it looks good, slightly wrinkled. But if you're travelling or if you're rushing about, it can take the wear a bit a bit hard. So if you can find it and if you can afford it, then heavier weight linens are great. Something more like a 10-ounce linen. But also, there are some really good blended linens. So either linen with cotton or linen with some sort of, of synthetic. It's a very small number. So the, the suit's not going to look like a cheap plastic suit. It's, you know, you've got maybe 5% in there of, of some sort of synthetic. And especially if you're in very hot climates, they're fantastic. I bought one from M&S in a cotton linen blend. I, I got to go to Chennai last year. And Chennai's hot and humid. It's 42, 43 degrees in the middle of the day. It's unbearably warm. And when you're traveling, especially if you're in taxi cabs, they're not always air conditioned. So you need something which is going to be cool and hard wearing. And I think heavier linens, linen blends are ideal for that. That's a second recommendation. I've also heard about linen silk blends. Was that was that something that because I, I heard that that doesn't make crease so quick? That's a very good point. In fact, I have a, a linen and silk blend sport coat that I wear quite often. It will crease under under hard wear, and it tends to crease when it's being packed, but it loses the creases equally quickly. There's always the claim about about hanging your suit over a steaming bath or a steaming shower. I've never found that to be especially effective with most cloths, but with this, it works really well. And because it's got the silk in it, silks are quite a, a robust fabric when it's woven. It always looks good. So even though this sport coat I've got now is, I bought that probably in, in 2011, I get compliments on it quite often. Linen silk bends can be a little bit expensive, but they don't, not always, especially if you if you buy towards the end of summer when the sales are on and think, I'll, I'll get that now for next summer. Well worth the investment, I think. Absolutely. I think it's a good, good plan. So good plan. The final cloth, which is something which is more if you're having a suit made, um, so it is more expensive. There's a cloth by one of the Huddersfield mills, and the name escapes me at the moment, but it's called it's called Fresco. Okay. It's a brand name. There are other copies of it, but I think Fresco is the one to get. And it's a very open weave quite robust wool. It feels quite rough to the touch and it has a little bit of a pattern or a sheen to it, similar to what you might find with, with mohair. Okay. It's not enough to be obnoxious, but what I really like about it, it's a very open weave, but because it can take a, a, a very good colour dye, you won't find things like your white shirt shining through. It's fantastically hard wearing. It's almost impossible to crease and it's so cool. If your budget can run to it and you want and you live in a hot climate, a fresco suit Look, looks great and because it's got that little roughness to the fabric it doesn't look too strange if you then pair the jacket with a pair of very smart jeans or with a pair of chinos in the way that a suit jacket doesn't look right with with chinos or jeans mm. Derek Guy who wrote the article we talked about earlier has some great articles about fresco on his dye workwear blog very nice I like that another menswear hack um, gentleman's hack is if you follow some of the cloth merchants or the mills online occasionally they'll have have sales where you can buy just a few metres, and you'll probably need about three and a half to four metres for a suit. You can buy that at a reduced price, and then when money permits or time permits, take it along to a tailor and have it made up. Yeah, that's a very good hack. I like that hack, sir. The final bit on summer suits is about the cut and how you're going to wear them. And this is where most suits have effectively three layers. Your outward cloth, and you have your lining on the inside, and then in between that you'll have an interlining, and that's what's uh, stitched or glued into place to give the suit its its structure. Like, perfect for what you need for three seasons of the year, for the summer 
it makes your suit very, very hot and warm. So what you want to look for is a part-lined or unlined or sometimes called buggy-lined suit. And that's where instead of that thick lining, if the cloth is robust enough to take it, there'll be no lining at all. If it needs a bit more support, you'll often find cloth straps, almost like ribbons, sewn inside just to give it a little bit of structure. But it means that you're only wearing one layer of cloth on over your shirt rather than three, which makes for a much cooler garment. And you can find often that that design used with heavier weight fabrics that can mean that something like a, a tweed jacket can be worn still in summer. I have a jacket from Brooks Brothers that's made that same way. And I can wear that on all but the very hottest days without being too hot because it's, it's not got that thick, heavy lining to it. And I think the nice thing about summer suits and summer clothing is you can go to town with colour of fabric for the suit, colour of fabric for what you're wearing with the suit. You can really push the boat out a bit more. Our partners, Hawes & Curtis, are a British brand with more than 100 years of heritage and tailoring. In 1913, Ralph Hawes and George Frederick Curtis opened their first store in London's Piccadilly Arcade at the corner of German Street, renowned for its resident shirt makers. From the beginning, Hawes & Curtis attracted famous clientele, including the Duke of Windsor, Cary Grant and Fred Astaire. Dapper gentlemen all. As a result of Horse and Curtis's commitment to impeccable service and product excellence, the brand has been awarded four royal warrants. Today, Horse and Curtis offers extensive menswear and women's wear collections, providing customers with complete looks for a whole variety of occasions. Please head over to their website, www.horseandcurtis.co.uk. This conversation was sparked by another comment on uh, Facebook, actually. We were chatting someone about on Facebook about uh, what to go with summer clothing and suits and style and stuff like that and for the more casual and more summery months. And so I was, it was something I kind of thought about and got into a debate with this chap, basically, because <laughs> he didn't like pretty much everything that I suggested. <laughs> fair, fair enough, yep. Personal choice, and I was like very happy with that. Other options are available. Because he was saying, and the first, of course, is loafers. So the original, you know, casual but formal mm -hmm. uh, style of shoe, the loafer, which was um, invented, oh, God, way back in 1847 by Wildsmiths in London. People always associate loafers with Italy, but no, they were British. They were British, and actually then they were taken a stage further by a Norwegian shoemaker. The famous Weegians. If you follow trad style, you'll often hear them talk about their, their Weegians. They, they were very style influential. So they mostly have leather or heavy duty soles. They're quite, you know, they're made from leather or suede. Generally, the loafers are a bit more hard. They're a bit more hard wearing. They are um, not laced, generally. They work very well in a sort of casual or semi-formal setting. And they certainly work well with summer weight suits, as we were talking about. Absolutely. Um, and the nice thing about loafers is they do come in a wide range of colours, especially suede ones. Our colleagues over at the Rake have done a, an electric blue tasseled loafer. And I was like, oh, that's very nice. But you can get a load of loafers in, in, in very different colours, very different styles that mm -hmm. can suit your personality. And, and they work very well with suits. And the nice thing, you get a nice leather loafer and it goes well with your your summer suit they're good again if you're traveling because they can do double duty for daytime in the office and then in the evening if you're wearing casual trousers or a pair of jeans um, as long as they're relatively smart jeans you look fine with loafers for, for those as well absolutely um and then my favorite summer footwear mm -hmm. is the uh, the driving moccasin 
Oh, I was wondering if we were going to talk about those. Yes. <laughs> yes. Personal favourite, um, and they're not for everyone. I, I know some people don't like them at all. Um, I mean, they're kind of like a loafer in one sense, but they are descended, unlike the loafer, which is more descended from a normal shoe. Uh, the moccasin, driving moccasin, was descended from, of course, the Native American moccasin. And they're generally made from softer materials. They're generally soft leather, suede, mm-hmm. uh, deer skin, or, or some other synthetic fabric. Mm-hmm. Generally have, <coughs> have a rubber sole. They don't generally have a, a leather sole. One of the things I think is great on the soles with those is they tend to extend round to the back of the heel. So that if you had your feet down, as if you imagine you were driving your the expensive Italian sports car that you had the poster of on the wall as a boy, <laughs> with your legs out in front of you, so that your heels can rest on this extended sole. And I think they look great. I'm a, I'm a big fan. For someone like like me, who's got quite broad feet, that longer sole, I think, serves to give an illusion of, of a bit more length and slimness to your feet. Well, and actually the converse is true because I've got very big feet and they actually tend to make my feet look smaller. The other thing about them, and, and they come more and more now in a dazzling array of colours. And they're slightly more formal, but it airs towards the casual a lot, but you can get some more formal ones, is what is uh, referred to as the boat shoe or the deck shoe, which is a very relatively modern shoe, built practically actually in for a a gentleman called Paul Sperry invented it in 1935 he was a keen sailor so it was built for practical purposes then it became very uh, fashionable in the 1980s stemming from the yachting culture and the preppy look came into out and Ralph Lauren sort of took it across the world they are generally made uh, with rubber white soles um, and leather uppers like loafers and driving moccasins they go from the very formal to the very casual they can be in a variety of colors they can be in a variety of styles so you can find something that is quite formal looking all the way down to something that's quite bright garish and certainly just for a casual wear what i like about them is again if if you're traveling they can do double duty yes you can wear them comfortably with shorts while you're on the beach or at a cafe or you can wear them with your suit and then the last three categories of shoe the Mm. summer shoes but not for the city or or somewhere like that espadrilles pyrenees since the 14th Mm -hmm. century Uh, they're a unisex shoe they were made famous by the gentleman i mentioned previously mr don johnson in miami vice indeed i actually didn't have a pair of those though i love them they're so comfortable they look great and they're very cool uh, and then the last couple um are sandals and flip-flops ah, yes are sandals the old probably the oldest footwear in the world mm-hmm. you know, come in many shapes and styles and colors and all sorts of things <sighs> the reason i sigh is <clears throat> sandals and flip-flops are worn with bare feet yes um and flip-flops really honestly should never be seen outside a beach environment or a holiday environment I would entirely agree. And it's amazing how many times I see people wandering around the streets of, of London uh, in flip-flops. Men, men. That disgusting slap, slap, slap sound. London is not a particularly clean city. No. By the end of the day, your feet must be horribly filthy. Uh, so one of my rants and bugbears, don't wear flip-flops in town. One of the problems I have with flip-flops, which comes from the self-defence aspect is that flip-flops are just an impractical mode of shoe for doing anything apart from sedate walking so if you have to move about if you have to avoid something if, if heaven forfend you have to you have to get into a physical altercation you can't do that usefully in flip-flops there are many other comfortable 
far more stylish, far more functional choices to have. If you're walking down the sands of Waikiki, flip-flops all the way. That's what they're for. But sandals and flip-flops, gentlemen, please make your feet presentable. If you are going to wear them, please make your feet presentable. Yes. Take care of your toes, your toenails. You know, make sure your feet are clean. Indeed, I, I conquer. But if you want to uh, to rant back at us about someone uh, something like sandals or flip-flops, please feel free to do so. You know, contact us on our social media channels. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's the P Gentlemen. Or drop us an email at inquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv. We're always happy to hear your feedback and any other thoughts on what we've discussed on the summer style elements. That's kind of wrapping up that stuff at the stylish gentleman section of this podcast that's great um and then just a very brief mm-hmm. uh little thing i think we do a quick summer grooming guide yes what are your main piece of advice on on that then zach let's start with a really basic and really easy one yes use a moisturizer with some kind of protection some protection factor in it yes use it for your for your face and your hands make sure that you do wear it mm. we forget especially in northern europe where we are that the sun comes out suddenly run outside and wish to get and sit in the sun and forget that you know we need to actually protect our skin wear a moisturizer with a little sun protection factor in it a good sun protection factor in it so you can sit outside and enjoying the sunshine without the fear of being burnt to a crisp and looking like a lobster the next day and keep it with you mm. put it in your in your briefcase or your your rucksack or whatever it is you carry around you know, a second grooming guide is good deodorant yes after you've showered in the morning or bathed in the morning or in the night before before you go out a very good deodorant yes deodorants have gone a long way since i first had them mm-hmm. you can get some great deodorants that are really resilient mm-hmm. so go and find a deodorant that works for you wear it liberally if you're wearing cologne bear in mind that how the cologne and the and the deodorant will will interact well i would say an un fragranced one if you can i think that's ideal if you can you can buy either from the same scent or from a very similar scent and then that's what perfumes call uh, layering little grooming summer gentleman hack carry a little uh, packet of wet wipes i saw a couple of brands that were deodorant wipes for for men there's a couple of brands out there now that that have that um if you can get those great if not just you know body wipes from the local pharmacy chemist and carry those with you so you know you can just wipe away the sweat Spray on the ignore deodorant and a little bit of cologne and, and you're fresh and ready to go out for the evening or the meeting that you need to attend. And the other thing is shorten the time between your haircuts. Yes. Summer, actually, your hair grows a little bit faster. Um, like your nails and everything else, you know, mm-hmm. you tend to, to grow faster in the summer months. And actually get the weight, especially if you have a lot of hair and you're lucky, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> then, you know, get the, get the weight of the hair out. And a barber will tell you how they do that. There, is, yes. there are tricks to do that. But um, yes. get the weight of your hair out. And if you can, you know, if it's a really hot climate, you're working in a very hot place, do go and quickly take a second shower if you can. And my last, not actually anything to do with grooming, is drink a lot of water. And when I say a lot of water, I do mean a lot of water. Something in the region of two to three litres a day. Yes. If not more. Women have been knowing this for years, but guys, we're just starting to realise that you need to do this. Just water, nothing else, not beer or Coke or whatever whatever else you want to drink. Just water because your skin needs to hydrate, body needs to Mm. hydrate. And if your skin will look really bad if you don't drink enough water. It's not rocket science. It's also good for other reasons as Mm -hmm. well, but actually for the grooming and for the skin, that's the best thing to do. So that's my little quick summer grooming guide. If you want more, it will be in the magazine. 
be a more detailed summer grooming yes. guide for you gentlemen out there in the, ma- in the Perfect Gentleman magazine, which we don't talk about enough. Maybe we should more. We should. I'm quite proud of some of the articles that are in there, especially some of our contributors who only get short slots on the podcast <laughs> because you and I talk so much. Get a chance to put their point of view across. No, absolutely. And it's different. We, we What we tend to do is the podcast is somewhat different to the articles generally. So the articles are a little bit mm-hmm. more uh, in depth, maybe more information and that sort of stuff in certain ways. And the podcast is a little bit more of us chatting and thinking things off the off the fly and yes. remembering things and <laughs> yeah and, and, and falling, falling into accidental rants, rants. or, or yes. actually actual rants <laughs> so uh that's kind of our groomed gentleman section of today almost at the end here now james before we finish it's our gentleman talks interview section and this month we are talking to a very good friend of the perfect gentleman and a great jazz musician his name is ray gelato He's got a new album uh, out with the fantastic jazz singer Claire Martin. I had the opportunity to interview him uh, a little while ago to talk about him, his life, his career and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he's a lovely gentleman. He's very stylish. He's very dapper. But he's an amazing saxophonist. Loves his swing music. And as you hear in the interview, it's a lot of fun talking to him. Today, uh, we at The Perfect Gentleman are proud to have Ray Gelato with us. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Zach. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? Very, very well. Very well. Good, good, good. So, um, uh, tell us a little bit about you for those who don't know you and don't know who you are. Give us a couple of seconds about who you are and what you, why you're such a fabulous person. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well uh, that would take a book to say. To that. <laughs> but in, in, uh, briefly, I'm a musician, uh, saxophone player, singer, and band leader. Um, we're, we're probably running one of the last of the working bands in that swing jazz kind of scene and uh, I, we go on the road and tour and uh, that's about it. We, uh, You've been in the best. business a, a fantastically long time for one so young uh, <laughs> and I, I've, I've had the great pleasure of, of seeing you work and listening to your music. It's fabulous and, and great job keeping that kind of style of music going. Well, the, the thing is I keep it going because people like it and it's, uh, it's, it's almost... Uh, a little more to listen to than maybe what's in the, you know, what kids are listening to today is a little more interesting. But it's not so intellectual as a lot of jazz now, which I find, I mean, I'm a big jazz fan, but I find that jazz per se can be either dinner music, which is a little soulless, as it's uh, uh, perceived today, or a little too intellectual. So we're kind of trying to get in the middle ground and, uh, and we get a lot, of, you know, a very, very diverse audience come to see us. Yeah, you do. What's fascinating is, do you think that the, the rise of people like Michael Bublé and Jamie Cullum and that, and that kind of um, audience drives it younger, so get, you get people coming who are younger and, and different, and, and they're, they're intrigued by that sort of music and drawn into that sort of music? Well, y- yes and no in my case, because when a, a Bublé or a Cullum gets success, or Robbie Williams does his Sinatra thing at the Albert Hall, for a couple of years it's great, because people the general public, I would say, become aware of the music. And yes, they will probably come to see people like me. It helps with the corporate bookings. But in our case, we just build the audience up, I think, on our own back over the years through, through hard work and touring and doing the Ronnie Scott's residency. And I think because the trouble is with, if you're following fashion, that just goes. And then the people that will, will, will just do it for fashion, fashionable reasons will not come anymore. So we try to build a lasting fan base up, you know. Then you have a great one. Yeah, it is. We're very lucky. Got a nice one in Italy, a little one in the US, and uh, very, very good in, in London and the UK. That's great. I'm, 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 I'm fantastic watching you play and perform, and the way you interact with the audience as well, you tell jokes, and I really <laughs> love it. I think it's really great. And, 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 you, and your fans keep coming back. Well, I, I was, you were saying that one of, one of, one of your, one of, 
when I went to one of your concerts, you were saying, you know, the family have been there for the last, every year for the last five years, and they brought their family every time they come. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what happens. They'll come, then they'll bring the kids, and then the kids get a little bit older, and, you know, become in their 20s, and then they'll come, and then they'll come without the mum and dad and bring their friends. So that's very healthy to do that, because... You know, even though we're playing an older style of music in the swing and the sort of uh, jazzy influence, it's important to get younger people into it as well. Oh, no, definitely. I, I, one of my favourite styles of music. So I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan already. I'm a convert. So I, let, I want to kind of go back to sort of uh, paraphrase Mary Poppins. <laughs> Let's go back to the very good beginning. So what was your earliest influences? What was your kind of early, you know, when you were growing up, who, who were the people, who were the men and ladies that influenced you? Well, uh, um, musically or in every single way? In every way. sense, really. Kind of what, what, was kind of what, what drove you down the path that you sort of moved along? Well, I think really was, was probably my, uh, my father's records, because my father was, or is from New Jersey in the United States. Right. So he uh, met my mother in the air, when he was in the Air Force stationed in, uh, in the UK and uh, had a fantastic record collection. Sammy Davis Jr. I remember one called The Wham of Sam with Sammy Davis with this old microphone and I used to be fascinated just by the cover. And then I'd put it on and hear this fantastic music and he'd have Dean Martin and uh, also a lot of rock and roll because he's a 50s kid, you know, that's when his, that was the music of his era. Fats Domino, Bill Haley and the Comets. No jazz, but, but what I call good, really good music. So he used to play that around the house. And I used to love it. I used to sing along to it and dance with my sister and uh, love the, the instrumental stuff. So that was it. And also my grandfather was a big influence as well because he was a, a London taxi driver. So he knew everywhere, everywhere and anywhere. And he would take me around as a little kid around to Soho. I'd walk around and look around. Obviously, it was a different place in those days, but I, I loved it. And he used to sh- introduce me to a lot of different things like that, you know. And, and so, so that influenced you down the, the path, but sort of, what influenced you as a guy? Was it your grandfather and your dad that influenced you as a man as well? I would say, um, my father used to work a lot when I was a kid. He used to have two, two jobs at one point. Well, he was working for, for Shell Oil as a, in the accounts department, but uh, he also had another job, believe it or not, working at the White City dog track, <laughs> taking the money, doing some, some accounts thing there. I, he just wanted to, needed two jobs. And... Um, my, but my grandfather was around more than my father. So I'd be in the front of the taxi. In those days, there was no health and safety, so you never needed seatbelts, you see. So I'd sit in the luggage rack, holding onto the air vent like that. And we'd drive all over London and t- picking up fares. That was amazing, you know, fantastic things. And he, he influenced me very much because he was a very polite, very, uh, very well-dressed, elegant guy. From the era, even on a hot day, he'd always have a suit and tie. And the Trilby hat, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I, mean, I, I remember my grandfather was a big influence on in my life because my, my father uh, left quite early. So my grandfather was a big influence on in my mm. life. And I suppose that generation, well, I, I, that generation still had that style and, 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 and dress and Absolutely. manners and etiquette yeah. that, that kind of... Huge manners, my grandfather. He told me two things, and it sounds strange, and it stays me to this day. Hold the door open for a lady, you know. You'd probably be slapped now for doing that, you well, know, we in these times. With, yeah, but, well, I, did, I think that changes. But, but it, it stayed with me, and also never steal, because people, people that steal are, are, are just wrong. So it was very, very good lessons, you know, just two little things he used to say all the time. He was a real gentleman, and everybody knew him, which was great. His name was Morris, so they called him Morrie, so he'd be in the cab, and it was, hey, Morrie. So it was lovely to be with someone that 
Well, not a celebrity, but everyone, everyone knew the guy in London, so it was fantastic. Well, he was a celebrity. In his yeah. world, he was the yeah. celebrity. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, and Dad was great too. You know, Dad, with, with, with the music a little bit more, we used to have, he's always been a fun guy. We have had, had a lot of fun, but I guess I spent more time with my, my grandfather, you know. I don't remember what music he liked, though. I guess it was Al Jolson and people from that era. <laughs> I don't know. Even further back? Probably a lot further back, yeah. And what was, what was your first sort of musical influence? When did you start going, I want to be a musician? You know, it, it, it's funny because uh, I guess I started to become aware of music in the 60s. Uh, my mum and dad used to take me to see these package shows. They used to have these big package shows in uh, the, the, the theatre on Shepherd's Bush. Now, I can't remember what it was called. It used to be the BBC Centre on Shepherd's Bush Green. Mm, yeah, yeah. Big theatre. And they used to have uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Uh, I mean, I was a tiny kid. I was only three or four years old. Uh, the swing in blue jeans, Gene Vincent, these 60s uh, mm. rockers. So I guess all that stayed with me at the time. So that was probably my earliest influence of seeing people live. And then my dad took me to see uh, Bill Haney in the Comets. Do you remember him? Rock I around do. the clock, Mr. Rock around the clock. Yeah. This guy came out with a kiss curl and a tuxedo, dressed immaculate, patent shoes, shiny shoes, and sounded and looked virtually the same. <laughs> this must have been 20 odd years later. And had a good band too. So that influenced me to, I just looked at it and thought, yeah. I'd, like some of that, you know, it was interesting. People loved it and uh, was stopped stamping their feet and clapping. I thought, yeah, it would suit me actually. So, when was your first gig? When did your first live performance? Well, I, I, I bought a saxophone on the back of what I loved from my father's records and the people I'd seen, and some clubs I was going to when I was a kid used to have a lot of live bands, a lot of blues bands and New Orleans bands. When I say New Orleans, not Dixieland, but, but that yeah. little uh, funky bluesy stuff. A lot of things going on in the early 80s, late 70s which was a fantastic place to cut your teeth. And the first band I was ever in, uh, I, I just sat in with this bunch of guys playing uh, kind of, I guess, 50s rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I, I managed to play. So they said, oh, come, let's rehearse. And it grew from there, really. And I used to just ask to sit in with anybody. I'd go up to a, uh, this wonderful New Orleans piano player called Diz Watson and say, do you mind if I play? He'd go, okay, well, come up to a number. I'd mess it up a little bit. He'd say, Let me come back the next week. And every week I came back, I got a little bit better and played with a couple of, uh, with, with uh, the, the band were professional musicians, so they were far in advance of what I could do. And I learned that way, by just listening and hearing and, and practicing and uh, asking a lot of questions, you know. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's really good. No music college. No music college at all. I'm glad, because even though I have some holes in my, what I call my musical knowledge and education, it gave me a way of communicating with an audience to learn how to play live. I learned on the live circuit, you know. So you just learned, you did, there was no, no education, just well, like I know I took formal lessons. With, I, I studied with a guy for three years uh, to learn how the saxophone really worked and how music worked. Because I just used to play along with my father's records. So I must have had a quick yeah. ear to learn how to play. And then, uh, then I also studied um, at the City Lit, in fact, not too far from here at Covent Garden, uh, night school to learn about, you know, theory of music and things like that. But I don't have a very deep knowledge of theory like someone who went to music college would have, you know. Okay. And, yeah, I think, doesn't that, you, know, you said, you gives the, you an advantage? It gives me an advantage playing live and becoming the personality that I uh, developed on stage, very much so. It gives me a little bit of a disadvantage when I've got to write arrangements out, because I'm so slow, I farm it out to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't do everything. Nobody can do every single thing. You have to work to your strengths. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm a big believer in that. I totally agree in that. 
uh, an image. That, uh, I, I've long, I have a long conversation with you about image because uh, when did you decide that you, this was your image, this was your brand, this was what you were going to do? Because um, I mean, I've known you for a few years, yeah. and you've always a stylish guy. You're exceptionally stylish when you're on stage, yeah. but you're even a stylish guy when you you know sitting around with your friends. I mean, wh why did you sort of? Hone down on this image, and what was kind of like your thought process for that? Well, a lot of the guys I used to hang out with when I was when I was in my teens used to wear suits. They used to like that '50s scene. So, you had two, uh, uh, you know, two schools: the, the scruffier ones with the jeans, and then people used to wear nice, what I call those D-mob kind of suits that were quite popular during the uh, late '70s, early '80s, like that. And David Bowie used to wear that sort of image. So we went through that with the peg pants and that. But the image I got now, I developed, you know, by looking at, I used to like the way people like Sinatra dressed and uh, those sort of people, you know, from that era. They were very, very always immaculate looking. And a lot of the, my heroes, like people like Lionel Hampton, the band leader, I used to see them come on the stage and wear, and I, you know, really immaculate uh, uh, attire. And I decided to sort of uh, get some of that for myself, you know. Okay, uh, where, so I have to ask, do you, you get your suits tailored? Do you, what, do you go... Uh, where do you get where do you get all your outfits? Do you spend hours hunting? Or? Hours and hours. I I, I used to uh, try off the peg secondhand shops when I was a kid when I was younger, and I didn't like that at all. So I started to get them made. My first tailor was in Harrow, uh, and the guy passed away. A guy called Jack Geach. My second tailor was a guy called Chris Rocco, who used to outfit Blue Rondo a la Turk. Do you remember that seventies or eighties band? Yeah. And, uh, and I use a succession of different guys now, but um, I always decided I wanted to get all the suits handmade because I could design them myself. Uh, I can make sure they're how I want them, and uh, I, I just don't wear off the peg. I can't wear off the peg suits. Uh, excuse the uh, helicopter. It's probably <laughs> Alan Sugar returning from his firing another apprentice. Yeah. Or Charles Satchi escaping. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I mean, so you. Do you I mean, because one of the things that we talk about and is, is, is important to me is, you know, style is very important. Style is timeless. I mean, it's one of those mm. things of fashion changes and style is, is timeless. Yes. And investing in a suit. I mean, you, you know, you obviously invested in your suits at an early age. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you view it as, you know, because having a tailored suit is not a cheap mm. uh, item. But, you know, what, what, what's your view on, on tailoring and, and going off the peg and... Well, it's a nice business expense you can write off and <laughs> put them against the, the, the table. But no, seriously, I, I, in my opinion, I just think it looks better. It fits better, it looks better. Uh, for me, being on stage, I, I need that, you know. And I've gone through a variety of styles. I used to wear double-breasted, which were the bigger kind of more, yeah. not zoot suits, but in that drape, uh, you know, more, 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 more uh, less fitted. And now I, I go for uh, a couple of different styles, but I like the single-breasted. Turn back cuff. See, that's what I like about uh, uh, bespoke tailoring. You can say, look, do this, turn back the cuff, put a cloth button on. Where are you going to get that off, off the peg? I'd be honest. To get a good off the peg suit, you're almost spending as, as much money. So, yeah. uh, you know, getting the man. I like the whole thing about going to the tailor, you know. You like the experience? I love the experience, yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. And I found a, 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 some great tailors that are hardly. No, you know, they're not Savile Row, but they do some fantastic quality, you know. I think that's very true. Everyone thinks of tailoring, they immediately think Savile Row. Yeah. And the, the, the high-end, best boat mm. suit. But there's some great tailors dotted around here in London, but all over the world that, that do great work. And yeah. they're not that, you know, they have that quality. Mm. That's, it's a handmade suit. Yeah. But they're not, you know, don't have the Savile Row price infrastructure to worry about. No, that, that, that's right. And I, I, what I do is I get the guys 
because my guys on the stage, I like them to look smart as well. So I get their jackets bespoke. Um, I don't get the whole suits anymore because we have subs coming in and out and it's a complete nightmare. But I'll get the jackets bespoke at somewhere, and the, but I'll get my suits made somewhere else. <laughs> just, just a price thing. But their jackets, it, it, it's great because you can't buy those kind of jackets off the peg or that kind of look that, that we need, you know, yeah. to look smart on the stage, you know. Well, that's your, I, 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 you and I share a, a love of pocket squares. Um, but where did you get all your stuff from? Where do you, you, where do you hunt around? Where do you, where do you go? I, I always buy my ties in the States. I rarely buy my ties. I used to wear the vintage ties, some of those, and they're, they're, they're really nice, but I found it quite hard to match with suits. But I go to, uh, when I go out to the States, I found some fantastic outfits, very, very old-fashioned outfits in Philadelphia. And they'll make really nice shirts. I haven't got one on today, but with the, the proper collars and the French cuff, the double cuff. And uh, they, they do some fantastic ties and some ties with matching hang, you know, uh, uh, pocket chiefs and things like that. Yeah, because America's very into their match. The tie in the yeah. pocket square has to I match. don't always do that, but no. it's quite a nice look for stage. Yes. You know, uh, but uh, I'll usually, I will generally buy all my stuff out there when I go and buy like 20 ties so it will last me a year and then <laughs> buy another 20 when I go back again. And what's a, what's a down day for Ray? What's, what's a not stage suit day? What's a, what's a... A down day is... Uh, uh, Smoking cigars, <laughs> I'll have a nice, a relaxing day. If I, I, I always enjoy a lovely cigar, a lovely uh, Havana, and uh, generally cooking. Enjoy cooking for my family or friends. Cooking, That's okay. a big passion of mine. What's your signature dish? Uh, I reckon New Orleans jambalaya. Nothing gourmet, just something beautiful put in the pot and, uh, with the right smoked sausage and the, uh, the, you know, the proper rice and the stock. Yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a lot of things, you know, I do curries and I can cook a lot of Italian stuff. Little arancini fried rice balls. Hell of a palava to make, you know, but it's very <laughs> satisfying. And it's an antidote for the craziness of the musician's business and the traveling, you know. But I find the cigars are the relaxing thing for me. They really bring me down, you know. But it's interesting because uh, uh, Nick and I were talking about cooking the other day and, and we were saying that, you know, it's a great art mm. for a gentleman to have. You know, yeah. it's one of those things that, you know, it is relaxing, it is fun, it is easy to do. Mm. And, you know, it's not particularly difficult. Everyone thinks cooking is very difficult. It's just like everything, it's preparation and practice. It is, it is practice, but it's also, I think, a little bit of a flair, a little bit. Anybody can do But when people say they can't cook, that's, that's rubbish. You can, you know, you just got to look. But my, most people say they can't cook, don't look at the dish enough. They don't check it enough and it burns. They all say, well, I'll burn. It's no excuse to burn anything. Just check it out, right? <laughs> look at it and... Uh, Make sure it's, uh, it's, 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 it's doing. Yeah. I, I'm coming to your house for jambalaya because it's one of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> so what's your favourite accessory? Because I, I, I see you always have tie pins. It's one of your... Yeah, I do love tie pins. And I used to wear the tie studs at, sometimes as well. I used to have some beautiful tie studs that went into the tie that would uh, uh, clip back there like that. But the trouble is, if I want to take the tie off towards the end of the gig, which I do, for two reasons. One, I get hot on it. And it looks quite good if you take the tie off, you know, that you, you can't do that. You've got to fiddle around. So, uh, yeah, I love tie pins. Cufflinks, although I don't have any on today, but I do love cufflinks. New and vintage. Uh, and shoes as well. Shoes? Yeah, shoes. I love, I buy a lot of shoes in the, uh, in the States as well, because you can find some very unusual shoes, you know. Not too over the top, but really nice. Uh, the two-tone, a little bit of snake skin here, and, uh, and uh, they look very nice on stage as well, very unusual. It's interesting, uh, you talk about buying shoes in America. I, I tend to buy mooch shoes in America because I have rather large feet, and, and generally shoes stop at, stop at a certain size here, size 11, and then, you know, I, I kind of, I have to go to America to get anything reasonably decent mm. beyond a certain size, and it's just, it is quite 
it's quite a challenge. But yeah, I love I love buying shoes as well. Yeah, I like English. I mean, I got these are these are Lokes today. I like the classic Lokes English shoes as well, and they always last so well. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say yeah, cufflinks, tie pin, and, uh, and and shoes. Cufflinks, tie pins, and shoes. I like it. I definitely, I'm, I, I, my my thing is pocket squares. I'm, I'm mm. a pocket square addict. Like if I see a pocket square, I'm generally going, oh, I must buy that. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked a bit about your music influences. Mm. What's your kind of music influences now? What, what do you kind of look at now and go, they're really good, they're great, you know? Um, I listen to a lot of old stuff still uh, because good music is not old, it's, it's timeless. My wife's a big classical fan, so I listen to some classical stuff with, with, with her. But uh, I still love vocalists, I still love people like, I love Louis Prima for his fun, the guy who did the King Louis Jungle Book, mm. but he did some fantastic jazz and the great stuff. Louis Armstrong, Sinatra. I'll listen to a lot of the classic sax players like Lester Young, Ben Webster. I love big bands, um, but I also love blues music and R&B music, old R&B, not what they call R&B now. Um, but people now, I think, uh, I think Jamie Cullum, who you mentioned before, does a, does a great, great job. Um, Buble, I, I, I like. It's not someone I'd listen to at home, hmm. but I would go see it. I'd like to see the concert. There's a new girl called Caro Emerald who's out, who I think is very good. She's doing something very interesting. Um, very retro take, but kind of like uh, uh, tangos and things like that. And she's had a number one album, so somehow people seem to like the music. You know, it's good. I think. Uh, do you think that the music industry now, because it's changed, because the industry has changed, and we'll talk a little bit about how the music industry mm. has changed for you, but the music industry has changed. People can find niches easier. They can investigate. You know, they can if they like country, they can buy country. If they like jazz, they can buy jazz. And they, you know, and an album like Carl Amro can can mm. drive forward and, and get to number one easier than 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 it, previously because it, no, I, 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 not personally. No, I think previously people would tend to be in a, into a more diverse music scene. I think it's become. So homogenised now, with, especially with younger people that we said earlier, who are listening to maybe four artists. What you got? One Direction, Rihanna, Katy Perry. Blah, blah, blah. That, there's so many people. So that saddens me a little bit. Not that there's room, not room for these people. There are, but God, there's so much out there. So, but I think with the internet, I don't think it's quite done what I would have hoped it would have done in 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 in, in getting people into more diverse music. Um, it, 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 what you say is right. It's probably easier to do that. But I'm not sure how many people actually do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, you spend. I, I know that you spend a lot of time online talking to your fans and, and yeah. engaging with them uh, in a, in the digital digital sphere. How you know? A, how easy was that for you to transition to? Because I mean, you you started in the traditional music industry, yeah. and now it's so mm. not the traditional music industry, you know. How, Sort of, how does that transition work for you? Because I mean, you, you, I mean, I know you're very good at it, and you're very good at doing it. But... Oh, thank you. I don't think I am, but if you <laughs> say that, that's nice. Uh, uh, well, I found the transition quite difficult. It, it, for example, we used to have mailing lists. You'd have a book at the foyer of the gig, and people would put their mailing list down. First, it was postal addresses years ago. Then it was email, and what a pain that was to log all that afterwards. Now, with Facebook and Twitter and what have you, it is a lot easier. And it's great, you can post a gig up. If you sell five more tickets, if something's not selling well, it's a bonus, which you can do on these things. However, I do find there's so many, everyone's on these sites now, and sometimes I tend to feel that you can be a little bit, one can be a, just a number on there. So it, it, it's not, what you post is not, maybe not taking so much notice of. 
But I, I don't know. I, th I think there's good and bad with it, really. You know. But I'm, I'm quite happy it's in because it saves my. It saves. Uh, me mailing hundreds of people out all the time. <laughs> but has it also changed your audience as well, do you think? I mean, you know, you were sort of at the beck and call of the record industry, the, the, the record label beforehand. It was where they wanted you to go, where they wanted you to promote, and now you can go, well, actually, I, I want to go here, right? Or I've heard about, you know, you tour around the world yeah. all the time. Mm. You know, I can go here. Or I've heard that these guys, you know, do stuff in Spain. I can go speak to them. Yes, I think it's made it... It's certainly given the artist more independence. Uh, again, having said that, the scene is smaller, the root scene is smaller than perhaps when I started out. Uh, there was That's a lot more live venues, so you've got a paradox really in it because I think you had more work then for live musicians, maybe less, less massive control of the big corporations and record companies. Um, but now I think, yes, it, 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 it is certainly helpful, but there, like I say, there's, there's plus and minuses to, to it, you know. Um, uh, I, we've all got to use it, and I, I kind of enjoy using it. I, a great thing about Facebook is, or Twitter, if I'm doing a new album, which I did for my Italian album, I did one completely in Italian, I put a post up and said, what songs would you like to hear? I'm doing an album in a year or whenever it is, please, I want your ideas. I've got hundreds and hundreds of people telling me, what, asking what songs to, that I should do. I checked them out, and some of them were great, and I put them on the album. So that, that is the real thing about it. You can reach so many people. And interact with them in that way. Interact with them, and they love to be part of it too. Yeah, they say, I, I was influential on getting yeah. that track on the album. I've done that with, an, I'm doing a New Orleans uh, blues recording in a, in a uh, well, when I could afford to put it out. And I've done the same thing, and people sent YouTube clips, all sorts of stuff. Try this one, try that one. Some of them I don't like, other ones are great. Things I would never have thought of. So they're in, interacting with the fans. Yeah. That's really cool. It's amazing, yeah. That's really cool. Amazing. You, you mentioned a couple of times, and of course your surname, your Italian heritage. How has that influenced you and your music and your life and, and what you do? I don't think at all because I grew, up as a, <laughs> I grew up as a Londoner, you know, and I only learned about Italian songs. I'm not talking about Sinatra or Dean Martin or Louis Prima, American, but real Italian when I started travelling there in the 80s. Uh, and again, the fans used to bring tapes. Oh, try this. Do you like this song? And that. So uh, uh, I guess it's, it was the cooking, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> and my temperament. And your temperament. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as the, who I am, no, not, not really. No? Not at all, no. I, I, I'm going to pick you up on the Londoner because you and I are both Londoners. And we're very, it's a very rare breed to, to both live and, and be from London. What is London as a city for you? Somewhere I always miss when I'm away. I've lived in two separate countries. I've lived in Florida for a year and Barcelona for a year. Um, both with my wife, we decided to get out. And I used, utilized the American passport, so I got dual citizenship because of my dad. And I thought, oh, I've got to use it. So I went out, out to Florida. Uh, six months, it was heaven. After six months, I thought, I miss London too much. I miss hanging in Soho and West End with my friends. and. You know, and uh, there's always something happening in this city. And, uh, and I'm still discovering streets and labyrinths and places that I, that I didn't even know existed. So uh, it, it's just a fantastic city. It's a city of wonderful culture, uh, uh, great music, great people, and I, I love it. I'd miss it if I left. I, I, I think I totally agree with mm. you. I totally agree with you. I think it's and you can get what you want. Yeah, I think everything's here. Yeah. Everything's here. You can, you can find everything. Yeah. Nothing really works sometimes. <laughs> it gets that you get that can get me down a bit. But there again, you know, and the weather. The, sometimes the weather. But if you live in another country, you, you do realise that uh, no, nowhere's a utopia. You've got your set of, a different set of issues somewhere else. Yeah. You travel a lot. Yeah. 
What's the what's the pluses and minuses of traveling? I mean, I, I mean, you know, we the perfect gentleman always talk the traveling gentleman that you know, mm. has to do certain things. For you, what's kind of your your raise quick guide to traveling? Quick guide to traveling is try to travel as light as you can. Check in online. Get a seat in the front of the near the front of the plane as you can. So then you don't have to walk past all the people and get your stuff. <laughs> Avoid airports as much as you can. <laughs> if you ask about the minuses, that's the minus now, the flying. I find it hard. I, I don't like the way that we're talking about gentlemen, and I don't like the way that one isn't treated as a gentleman. Uh, I'm not talking about just me. A anybody, I feel we are treated quite badly by the airline industries generally, and I think that's wrong. I don't like that at all, where you're, you're uh, just shoved from pillar to post, not, sh uh, not shown any respect. And that's the side of the, the industry I, found is, I find very hard now, the, the flying. And it's got worse. It's got a lot worse. Uh, the, the pluses, of course, are the uh, playing to different fans, diverse fans who are fantastic people, uh, and eating wonderful food in different countries. That's what I like to do, you know. And especially Italy, because that's the best cuisine in the world, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not biased at all. Every region you go, it's a different thing altogether. But uh, I, I put up with the travelling. Well, there's no ideal situation. You have to put up with it. But I, I find that's got quite hard. Yeah, I mean, gone are the days of the glamorous travelling. I remember my grandfather and my grandmother talking about, yeah. the, you know, the days of glamorous travelling. You know? yeah, that's right. And if I do anything now over three or four hours, then I'm booking premium economy, no matter what it costs me. I don't care. Mm. Because you do get that slight little bit of, a, of, of nicer treatment and you feel a little bit better. It makes a big difference. It does make a big difference. A big at the difference. end of the day, it makes a, a big difference. difference. So what's yeah. your favourite place in the world? That's a hard one because I've got so many. I'd say uh, New York City, here of course, and Rome. Okay. Yeah. I'd say New York, if I had to say one favourite place, New York. Why New York? Uh, you know what? It's London plus more to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's London plus more. I, 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 I find the atmosphere there a little more positive. I like Americans for their positivity generally. And I find New York, even though it's brash and whatever, it's a, a can-do city. And sometimes you find with London it's a little bit of a, a maybe or can't-do city. Which, which it's, it's probably wrong of me to say, but I do think New York is a little more positive, And I like that. I like the energy there. When you play there, you get an energy, some kind of energy. I can't describe what it is. I'm sure you know what I mean. No, 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 I do know what you mean. I love New York And people well. speak to you. They're very nice. You go to the... Uh, go somewhere more than, more than once or twice, and people are... They seem to be very... I, I find them courteous, very courteous, New York. Is that old school manners thing, isn't it? Old school manners. And I found that living in the States as well, living in Florida. There was an old school manners that, unfortunately, the UK seemed to have... Uh, it's dropped a little bit here. How do you think we can bring it back? By people like us. <laughs> no matter <laughs> well, what culture you are or what class of background you're from, it's how you carry yourself and how you treat people. I think that's important. So as I go back to the airline industry again, I put my boot into them. But they really need to get a, a customer service again that makes people, you know, because if, if we're treated well, then you treat the staff well and the world is a better place. It goes round, you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's the certain airlines, we won't name them, do tend yeah. to treat people like cattle and, and, and yeah. it's, it get them in, get them out, and it's just mm. basically, you know, and there is a, I suppose there is a place for that kind of travel. But, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, I, I think I agree with you. You're going, you know, most business travel or pleasure travel is either there because you have to in the business sense and you want mm. it to be comfortable enough yes or it's pleasurable in which case it's part of your holiday or part of your journey in That's which right. case you know you want to feel good yeah. and the, the dreading of getting on the plane because it's a cattle yeah. uh, mission is, is awful it is uh, in fact I've got in my contract now uh, we can't mention airlines but there's certain airlines I said 
to the promoters, don't even run them past me because I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to go on an airline with a stag and hen party when we're trying to go on our own business. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. You're just not doing it, you know, so... That was fantastic, Zach. Really interesting. I'm a, a, a big fan of Ray's and great to hear him talk. Often I listen to his music, but listening to him to him speak is great. Full of life and a stylish gentleman. He's always very stylish, is our Ray. He is. If you look at his some of his, uh, his publicity shots online or some of the things that are on, for example, the BBC have a, a music page about him. Very smart. We post a lot of his music on our toe-tapping Tuesdays on uh, Twitter. So that's the end of today and the end of our first June podcast. Yes, I'll get my uh, my espadrilles on and get into the garden. Yes, I shall find a white jacket and roll the sleeves up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for listening to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. I'm Zach Faulkner-Barfield. I'm James Marwood. Thank you very much, guys. We went off on one today, didn't we? We did a little, <laughs> yes. You know, topics close to our heart. And uh, yes, in fact, I, I did an, an article, I'm just looking it up now, a while ago about um, basically saying your feet are ugly, stop wearing, stop wearing sandals. Um, <laughs> I, I hate sandals. I've never worn a pair of sandals. I refuse to wear them on the... I actually don't own a pair of foot flops. I don't... No. I hate them. I won't wear them on the beach. I'll either go barefoot... Mm-hmm. Um, just out of principle, or I'll, I have a pair of um, like diving shoes, but they're not diving shoes. They're kind of in that that sort of. Format. I know the sort of the sort of style you mean. Yes, yeah, sort of yeah. the, the windsurfers and sort of they use, but they've got holes in and stuff like. That. I use those because I I just will refuse to wear uh, flip flops out of a matter of principle. I, I have had them in the past. I have a pair of they're basically flip flops. They're like a, a woven Japanese design um, that are um, when you're doing. Brazilian jiu-jitsu especially, or any martial art where you're in, in bare feet, you need something like that in case you need to step off the mat and go to the bathroom or, or whatever. They live in my gym bag and they don't, they don't come out unless they're, unless they're being worn at the gym. I think the problem for, for me with a lot of it is guys often will worry about, about getting hot and uncomfortable because they haven't invested in a couple of pieces that will allow them to look good and feel good in summer. They just revert to what they would wear on, on holiday at the beach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. It's such a shame because it's another opportunity to have fun with clothes. Fun with clothes. I feel like we're doing the Big Bang Theory, you know, Sheldon's <laughs> yes. fun fun with flags. Fun with clothes. <laughs> that would be perfect. <laughs> oh, almost, we should parody that one day. <laughs> um, I think you would make a good Sheldon on that one. Oh, thank be... you very much, sir. Yeah. Does that make yeah. you? Does that make you Leonard? I, I think well, probably if we're doing fun with flags, it would make me Amy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not telling my wife that, that we said that. Yes. <laughs> the article I um, I wrote, it was a very short one, and it was referring to an article in, in Slate magazine against flip-flops, but basically it was, put a shoe on, you slob. <laughs> Quote from the, from the Slate article, from the Slate article, which is back from 2013, is, uh, the crux of the flip-flop problem for me lies in the decoupling of footwear from foot with each step and the attendant decoupling of the wearer's behaviour from the social contract. <laughs> That's a lovely line. I it really is. like that. Uh, yeah, that was that was Dana Stevens who wrote that for 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 Slate, and it's 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 a great article. We've had a good time. This this has been a good podcast. Jazz, summer clothing, and and rants. What can we what can we want? What 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 is better than that? <laughs> so, so yes, I'm I'm, I'm going to go now and uh, and let's say I'm going to put my I'm probably going to put a pair of shorts on, put my spadrilles on, and uh, and and go and have a, a a little meal in the garden with the Duchess and enjoy the sun.
Well, you do that, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to dig out my episodes of Miami Vice on DVD and uh, and, uh, <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> and see if I can find anything that's that's actually made it back from the 80s into the modern era. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.